Genesis chapter 12. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 9. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was seventy-five years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Moreh. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. Amen. Please be seated. And uh, would you pray with me as we ask for the Lord's help as we consider his word together. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do desire to come to the waters to drink deeply of the river of your delights. We come to that life-giving one, the Lord Jesus Christ, crucified and raised forevermore. We thank you that we have true fellowship with him by spirit-wrought faith that you are by your word and spirit conforming us to him who died and was raised. Lord, as we seek to die to sin and live to righteousness, would you use your word to do this great work in our hearts? Would you lift our eyes to the heavenly places where Christ is seated at your right hand, that we might draw strength from him to live this week? In Jesus' name, amen. When I open a new book... I typically pay attention to the first line. There's something about opening lines that I enjoy. And I've tried to reflect on this. It's probably because I have a hard time finishing books. Maybe the first line is the only line that I can remember. But there's something about opening lines as well. One writer said, opening lines are doors to worlds. Sometimes the opening line of a book can foreshadow what's to come. Sometimes it grabs your attention. Sometimes just from an opening line, you know what book I'm talking about. Uh, If I were to say the words, call me Ishmael, you would know, or you would pretend to know, uh, that we are dealing with Melville's novel Moby Dick. George Orwell's uh, dystopian novel 1984 opens with these words. It was a bright, cold day in April, and the clocks were striking 13. One of my favorite opening lines is from Pat Conroy's memoir about his junior high school basketball season. He opens the book by saying, I was born to be a point guard, but not a very good one. (laughs) Sometimes theology books have good opening lines. I love the way J.I. Packer opens his book, Knowing God. He says, as clowns have yearned to play Hamlet, 
So I have wanted to write a treatise on God. And then another book, one of my favorites, a book on heaven, begins this way. The Bible tells us of the existence of a realm our mortal eyes cannot see. We'll actually come back to that idea in just a little bit. Genesis 12, verse 1, is not the opening line of the Bible. Of course, that opening line is significant. But this verse, verse 1, is extremely significant. It is a door to a new world. It's, it's a door to a new and glorious phase in God's plan for the world, his, his one plan of redemption. Genesis 12 opens up the history of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Abraham is the first of the patriarchs. His name here is Abram. His name is going to change to Abraham in Genesis 17. He will be the father of a multitude, God tells him. And you know that he's significant in the Bible for a number of reasons. First, Abraham is the father of Israel. Over at Westminster Press, we are working through in the morning a series on the divided kingdom of of Judah and Israel. And this is Abraham's family. This is is a dysfunctional family uh, come from Abraham, the nation of Israel. Second, you know that through Abraham comes Jesus, the Messiah. He comes from the tribe of Judah. In fact, speaking of opening sentences, if we were to flip over to the New Testament and look at Matthew's gospel, the opening line of Matthew's gospel says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. But Abraham is important for a third reason. He's not only the father of Abraham and the one through whom comes the Messiah, but third, Abraham in our Bibles is exalted before our eyes as the quintessential believer. Abraham is the man of faith. Abraham is one who hoped in Christ before Christ came in the flesh. We know that Jesus says in John chapter 8, as he's dialoguing with the Jews who who take their hope and make their appeal to their biological connection to Abraham, Jesus tells them, Abraham saw my day and was glad. He says that in John 8. And over in Romans 4, the Apostle Paul is talking about how we are justified through faith in Jesus Christ, not by any works that we do. And who does he hold up as the example of the Old Testament of being justified through faith? It is Abraham. He says in Galatians 3.9, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham the man of faith. So so Abraham is the one who is the father of Abraham. He's the father of Jesus Christ, but he's also the quintessential believer and the one in whose footsteps you and I are called to walk as those who hope in Christ. And it's in that latter sense that I primarily want to look with Abraham, look at Abraham with you uh, this morning. Abraham as the believer. Abraham was a fallen man. Abraham was a sinful man. At times, Abraham doubted God. At times, he was intimidated by men. At times, he agonized over his children. At times, he struggled in his marriage. But for all of that, Abraham enjoyed a true and intimate fellowship with the living God through faith in the coming Messiah. God says in in Isaiah 41 that, that Abraham is a friend of God. 
The faith that he had in the coming Messiah itself was a gift of the God who saves. And by looking at Abraham as as the man of faith, I want us to consider our text from Genesis 12. And I want us to see specifically this morning how the text reveals Abraham to be a fallen but redeemed believer, just like you and me, who was called out and called up by the living God. He was called out and he was called up. What exactly do we mean by this? Well, let's look at this in turn. Right from the start in verse 1, God calls Abram out. He calls him out. This calling out is especially clear if we widen our gaze and look at the context of Genesis 12 in light of Genesis 11. What happens in Genesis 11? Well, one of the things that happens is the Tower of Babel happens. Babel, that culmination of the of the apostate, rebellious spirit of man revolting against the living God. You remember all the way back in Genesis 3, God had said that the seed of the woman, Eve, and the seed of the serpent would be locked in combat against one another. There would be enmity between those who walk in the footsteps of faith and those who are hostile to the kingdom of God. There will be an enmity, a a spiritual war, and that war breaks out in all vivid colors in Babel as as the heaven-scaling seed of the serpent gathers to build a city and a tower, a kind of ziggurat structure, a kind of squared-off wedding cake-like structure. It was a monument, but a monument not to God. It was a monument to the glory of man. And you remember what happens in Genesis 11. God God looks down from heaven. He looks down almost with a smile at this paltry effort by man to scale to the heights of heaven by his own strength. And and God comes down and he thwarts that scheme and he, he destroys the tower. And what does he do with the people? He confuses their language and he scatters them across the earth. He scatters all who lusted after a godlike autonomy as the creatures of his hand. And then we move into Genesis 12, and, and God calls Abram out, out, as it were, from the rubble of Babel as a kind of first fruits of a, a new humanity that God is going to build in the name of his son. God calls him out as, as part of a plan to gather a covenant people who are scattered across the earth from every tribe and tongue and nation. In terms of Abram's own life, God calls him out of his own unbelieving background. We know this is true. The command is emphatic. The command is personal. Go, he says. Literally, go for yourself from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And we learn later in the Bible that God called Abram out originally from a place called Ur of the Chaldeans. Ur was a place of of ancient Mesopotamia, uh, probably located in modern-day Iraq. And by the time we get to Genesis 12, Abram has made his way to a place called Haran. This is the place where Abram's father seems to have lingered. And so God calls him out again emphatically and comprehensively. And he calls Abram to leave everything that he holds dear, 
Notice, notice God calls him to leave everything from the greatest to the smallest, from the less intimate to the most intimate. He must leave his land and his country. He must leave his relatives and his clan, his kindred. He must leave even his immediate family, his, his father's house. Already we can hear early echoes of Jesus' own claim to his own disciples in Matthew 19. He says, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Friends, you know that many in this world, when they become Christians, they have to leave quite a bit behind. Uh, We think of those who live in Muslim-majority countries, for example, who become Christians. Oftentimes, when God calls them out of their own background, they are also cast out by their own family. Well, one lesson we need to learn is that it's not just those who live in Muslim-majority countries who must go where God calls them, wherever you go, wherever you come from. When God calls you to follow Jesus Christ, he He calls you to leave something behind. He calls you to leave behind your former lifestyle, uh, former habits, uh, former jokes, former loves. Because by the Spirit of Christ, as we grow in Christ, God wants us to adopt new habits and new loves and a new lifestyle. Of course, you and I know all too well that, that as believers, we still struggle with so much of the old life. We feel keenly the, the plague of indwelling sin day by day, but we know, don't we, that, that when we are joined to Jesus Christ in his death and resurrection, that there has been a principial break. There has been a principial breach with the dominion of sin over our lives. There's, there's been a new birth, uh, we learn in John 3. There's a new life, and, and the Christian life is one of acclimating to this new life in Jesus Christ more and more. Years ago, I remember talking to a pastor who had been consulting with a woman who was struggling with whether the Lord wanted her to give up something, do something in a particularly difficult situation. And she was wondering to the pastor, is this really what God was calling her to do? And I remember that in that particular case, the pastor had said to her, I think you made that decision long ago when you decided to follow Jesus. And the woman looked back and smiled and said, yes, you're right. Well, this is what God has called Abram to do physically, geographically, to go out. He called him out. And so we ask the question, what makes it worth it? What makes it worth it? Well, what makes it worth it is that the same God who calls Abram out also calls him up. He calls him up, up, he says in verse 1, to the land that I will show you. And then God gives Abram a number of promises. Uh, Five times we hear the words, I will. I will make you into a great nation. Of course, the nation of Israel. Uh, This is a testimony to to the supernatural power of God for this man. Abram was 75 years old. He had no children. He had a barren wife, and yet God says, I will make you into a great nation. Number two, I will bless you. 
I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Not only material wealth is in view, which of course Abram accrues, but, but he accrues a flourishing life. And again, the, 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 Babylon, the Babel tragedy is in the background. Against all the vain efforts of the Babelites to build a name for themselves, God tells Abram, I'm going to give you a great name. It will be great because he will bear the name of God. Ultimately, he will bear the name of Christ. God says, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. Of course, blessing and cursing is covenant language. It's an expansion of his blessing that God had already given to Eve, the curse that he had already leveled against the serpent. God is saying that that his promise of steadfast love in the gospel will radiate out from Abram to every man, woman, boy, and girl on the earth in the preaching of the gospel. And as he calls people into Jesus Christ, that love will be received and known through faith so that, so that every one, the destiny of everyone, will hinge on where they stand relative to the God of Abram, the God of the covenant, the creator of heaven and earth, especially Jesus, his son. And then God says, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. As Abram believes God and receives this promise, he, he becomes the conduit of this blessing to others. And as the Bible unfolds, we see this fulfilled in the, in the seed of Abraham, the person of Jesus Christ, who, who in his death and resurrection achieves, secures this blessing for you and for me. And he pours it out upon Jews and Gentiles who come to him through faith. Life with God. Life with God in the Spirit. Unbreakable fellowship with the living God. What a glorious calling Abram received from God. Called out of the rubble of Babel. Out of the old world. Out of his old life. Even within his own family. And he's called up. He's called up to God. He's called up to the kingdom of God, into the blessing of God through Jesus Christ. And, and this is what God is doing today. He does it uniquely in Abram's life, but he does it with people today. He, he calls people out through the preaching of the gospel, through the preaching of the word, as the, as the offer of total salvation in Jesus Christ goes out to every man and woman and boy and girl. God calls you and me to be part of Abram's spiritual family and then as the as the external word goes out we learn in scripture that god calls people inwardly as the spirit works by and with the word he transforms hearts jesus himself from heaven commands the holy spirit to take the word of god and break the heart transform the heart lift up the spirits of men and women into the realm of heaven through fellowship with Jesus Christ. It's a liberating call that God gives through his word. The Methodist Charles Wesley sang better than he said he believed about this sovereign call of God. He says, Long my, ins my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused, that is, thine eye extended a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. 
My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Well, this is exactly what Abram does in our text, isn't it? God had called him out. God had called him up. And what does Abram do? Well, he goes out, and we could say he looks up. He goes out, and he looks up. What do we mean by this? Well, first, Abram obeys God's call to go to the land that God had promised him. It's actually quite striking in our text how quickly he does this. God calls him, and it seems without hesitation, without lingering, and certainly without any details of where he was to go. We read in verse 4, So Abram went, as the Lord had told him. He goes with his nephew Lot. He goes with his wife Sarai. He goes with all the people and their possessions. But even so, he had no biological child. He had no land to call his own. He had no earthly hope. But he had the infallible promise of Almighty God. He had the sovereign I wills of the great I am. And he lifted his eyes from those promises to the promising God. And let's not miss that he does all of this at age 75. That's a subtle reminder to us, I think, that there is no age limit in responding to the call of God, in trusting in God, in growing in grace. Uh, Right when I came to Atlanta, uh, very shortly after, we had a woman in our congregation who went to Africa in her 70s uh, to serve as a missionary with with her daughter. I'm just saying, watch out. When you hit your 70s, you never know what the Lord might do in your life. This redeemed seed of Eve, this this father of Christ, obeys the Lord. And notice, how does he obey the Lord? He obeys God by moving into a land that at that time was populated by Canaanites. In other words, at the time, this was a land filled with the people who were at enmity with God filled with a people whom, in terms of Genesis 3, are characterized as the seed of the serpent. This chosen servant of God, Abram himself, moves into a land ruled by the seed of the serpent. This is what verse 6 means when it says, at that time the Canaanites were in the land. And yet, what does God do with him? He, He does with Abram what he does with you and me. He preserved him. He kept him. He watched over him. The text says he, he arrives at a town called Shechem. Shechem was about 40 miles north of Jerusalem. He moves to a, to a prominent tree. Verse 6 calls it the Oak of Moray. We don't know exactly what is the significance of this tree, but, but I think it's plausible that Abram, the child of God, was, was thinking of another tree, the tree of life from the Garden of Eden, that, that wonderful symbol to Adam and Eve, of of the unbreakable fellowship with God that that Adam could have achieved through obedience, but he he forfeited through sin. We don't know exactly the significance of this oak of Moray, but we do know that, that it was there that God appeared to him. God appeared to him in some visible form. Uh, theologians call these theophanies, appearance, uh, an appearance of God. And what earlier God said he wanted to show him in verse 1, 
Here in verse 7, he says he will give him. God assures Abraham, to your offspring, I will give this land. There it is, that that same word from Genesis 3.15, your offspring, your seed. That first gospel promise is unfolding in the life of Abraham. And what I think is so spiritually instructive for us is how Abram responds to the appearing of God with two emblems, two symbols of his life, two marks of somebody who has been called out and called up by God. And I think both of these emblems relate to you and me. So let's consider these two as we, as we draw to a close. The first symbol of Abram's life as one called out and called up is the tent. The tent. Verse 8 says Abram moved south between two towns, uh, Bethel and Ai. And verse 8 says, there he pitched his tent. Now think with me about a tent. As you know, a tent is not a permanent structure. A tent is the home of a pilgrim who is not at home. This is what Abram was. Listen to the way the author of Hebrews describes Abram's journey. In Hebrews 11, it says, By faith Abram obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. Verse 9, By faith he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob heirs with him of the same promise. Okay, did you hear that description? It says, Abram lived in a tent in the land of promise. By faith he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents. Now, of course, he lived in a tent because the land of promise was not yet his in full possession at the time. The Canaanites were still in the land. Israel would come in and wipe out the Canaanites generations later. But there is a deeper significance to the tent life of Abram in the land. And this tent communicates to us that Abram was not ultimately looking to that land. He lives in a tent because he knew that he was a pilgrim in the earth. Even in the Old Testament land of promise, Abram knew that that land of Canaan was not his final reward. You see, Abram and the patriarchs were aiming at something greater, much greater than the land of Canaan. They were aiming at the highest conceivable heavenly goal. They were aiming at that for which you and I were made. They were aiming for life with God in glory. They were aiming for that unbreakable, consummated fellowship with God that is in store for every, everyone who is joined to Christ. And this is true for us today. If, if, if we are united to Christ, we are a pilgrim in this world. We're a pilgrim because we belong to Christ. And Christ is not in this world. He is at the right hand of the Father in heaven itself. And the scriptures say that where Christ is, that is our true home. Philippians says that our citizenship is in heaven. 
For from there we await a Savior who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his. No doubt there are times when we feel our pilgrim identity quite keenly. Perhaps we are as our culture grows and grows more secular. John Calvin says this, If heaven is our homeland, what else is the earth but our place of exile? Friends, I think this pilgrim identity of the Christian is one of the most liberating things we can learn from the scriptures. Because it frees us to live for the glory of God in the face of this fallen world. If you are marginalized in this world, in your workplace, in your home, it's okay. Because you're not beholden to anyone on earth. Jesus will say in his Sermon on the Mount, if somebody forces you to walk with them one mile, walk with them too. Because you live for God, not for any man. And if we suffer many trials in this world, there's no doubt we do. We know that as pilgrims in this world, these trials are the instruments of of God himself to draw us nearer to Christ, to to wean us from, from the love of this world. That's one of the purposes of our trials. Yes, God has given you much to do. He's given you families to love, jobs to accomplish, many blessings to enjoy. But make no mistake, God has called you out. And wherever you go, whatever you do, you are a pilgrim in this world. Listen again to Hebrews 11 after it catalogs all the Old Testament saints who walked by faith and not by sight. It says, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Were these Old Testament saints strangers because they had some kind of weird obsession to reject the world? Were they driven by some monastic impulse? Were they trying to be weird just for the sake of being weird to the world? No, no. The essence of their pilgrim identity was not found in what they were leaving behind. It was found in what they were seeking. And they were seeking the person of Jesus Christ. Theirs was a whole-souled pursuit of the glory of Jesus Christ as it fills the heavens above. That, That realm that our mortal eyes do not see is filled with the radiance of Jesus Christ crucified and raised, and to be there with him was the all-consuming desire of their souls. Listen again one more time to how Hebrews describes it. He says, but as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. And this brings us to the last and final emblem of Abram's life in the land of promise. Not only the tent, but also the altar. The altar. In verse 7 and again in verse 8, Abram builds an altar to the Lord. The altar is his response to God's call on his life. It is his response to God's appearance, his response to God's promises. The altar is the visible expression of Abram's faith in the promises of God. And that expression can be summed up in one word, worship, worship. It is at the altar, verse 8 says, that Abram called on the name of the Lord. 
It is there that he engaged in self-forgetful delight in the living God as his God. It was there that he knew soul-satisfying joy, ascribing to God the glory and honor and power due his name. In all of his sojourning in the midst of the land of promise, what filled Abram's heart was that his heart's desire and ultimate satisfaction was found in God himself. And as an expression of his pursuit of God, of the satisfaction in God, his refuge in God, his delight in God, he worshipped at the altar. He would place an animal on that altar. It would be consumed by fire to God, and the smoke of that sacrifice would rise up to God as a sweet-smelling aroma, holy and pleasing to him. And once again, we do the same thing. We gather to worship the living God through sacrifice, through, of course, the final sacrifice, through the person of Jesus Christ sacrificed for us and risen forever. He, Jesus, is the preeminent pilgrim. Matthew says he had nowhere to lay his head. Jesus, of course, was the pilgrim of pilgrims in this fallen world. And he was that one who at the very same time was flawless in living for the glory of his Father in the world. And by the way, it was for that reason that he was so so intentional, so attuned to those around him. And at the culmination of his earthly obedience, he was consumed on the altar of the cross. And, and like the smoke of Abram's sacrifice, he, he rose in heavenly power over sin and death and darkness, and he ascended to his Father's right hand in heaven. And because Jesus is now in heaven and you are joined to him, you have been raised with him through faith, you are now to live a pilgrim life in his footsteps. You are called out of this world. And because Jesus is in heaven and you are joined to him through spirit-wrought faith, you are to pursue the living God as your deepest satisfaction and highest joy in the world. You've been called out and you've been called up the tent, and the altar. You are a pilgrim worshiper. These are the emblems of your life. These are the marks of your pilgrimage. Well, let me just close by asking you this. Have you been called out? Have you been called up? Before anything else in this world, are you, are you really living like a pilgrim worshiper of the God of Abram. If, if not, may this day, may this text open before you a new world. May this text be like a, a new line in the book of your life. May Jesus Christ himself be the door to that new heavenly world. Friends, it's not just that there is no other way to live. It's that there's no better way to live than in fellowship with your Lord through spirit-wrought faith. So let me close with this familiar words from the Apostle Paul that dovetail what we've seen from Genesis 12. Paul writes in Colossians 3, If you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. Why? 
For you have died. In Christ, you've been called out, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. You have been called up. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Come quickly, Lord Jesus.